Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm speaking with Sarah Trail. Sarah is the founder of Social Justice Sewing Academy, an organization that provides young people with free workshops to make textile art about social justice issues. You might think of quilters as little old ladies and rockers, but this fierce young warrior will upend all your notions of what can be achieved through the artistic expression of quilting. Fabric, needle, and thread are put to use in decidedly un-old lady-like ways, giving these young people the chance to protest injustice and be heard for the very first time. Sarah and I talk about how Trayvon Martin's murder propelled her from a very young, very successful sewing career into tackling social justice issues with her craft. The community that's developed between the young quilt designers and the older, whiter volunteers who do the technical work to create the finished product, and the ways we can help, whether we can sew or not. And now, here's my conversation with Sarah Trail. Sarah Trail, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thanks so much, Nancy. I'm excited to be here. Let's start with you telling us, in your own words, what Social Justice Sewing Academy is all about. So SJSA is a group, 100% volunteer run. We're an organization that goes into spaces with young people and allow them a free opportunity to create textile and fiber art about an issue that matters to them, that we put into individual quilts, that we put into community quilts, with the goal of empowering youth to use art as a means for social change but also have their voice be heard in spaces it might traditionally not be necessarily listened to. Great. Definitely going to ask you a ton of questions about all that, but I'd like to just take a little step backwards and have you tell us about your history in the craft world. I know you've had a long one, and specifically sewing, I believe. When and how did you get started doing that? So I've been sewing since I was four. My grandma was kind of like my first intro, so from like four to six sit on my grandma's lap. She had an antique treadle singer and I'd really just let her push the pedal and I'd guide. And then as I got older, I was like, I want to do my own thing. So my mom bought me a machine. She then built my skills up, maybe like beginner to like an advanced beginner. And then I guess around eight, nine, 10, mom would pay for me to be in adult level, but basic sewing classes. And then I quickly moved to like intermediate and then advanced. So by like the time I was like 10, I was taking adult level sewing classes and paper piecing techniques, and applique, and just a lot of quote-unquote hard techniques. Yes, it sounds like you were something of a child prodigy. (laughs) I would really hard push back on that. I would say coming from a (laughs) middle-class background with two parents who have like a lot of resources, I was the result of creative privilege in the sense that my parents had the luxury to afford to give me access to spaces that could really ingrain and equip me with tools to become better. I wouldn't say it was any special talent of my own, really more so the access that my parent could constantly buy $12 yard fabric for me to cut up and be like, oh, I don't want this anymore. Mom, buy something else. My machine broke. That's a $100 fix-it ticket. She didn't know how to check the tension. I mean, a little bit of talent. I was patient. But I'd say for the most part, it was about access and about the privilege that I had to be able to afford. My mom bought me mentors through all the classes she paid for. So I had a lot of adults tooling me up, but it wasn't due to naturalness. It was due to like, I'm paid to get tooled up. 
Well, that's very humble of you, but I can safely say that I am the world's worst sewer and I've had people try to teach me and I have absolutely no skills whatsoever. (laughs) But I know you started, you had some commercial ventures as a young person. You want to tell us about that? From 10, I was quote unquote a good quilt maker. 11, I got into pattern design and everything. So at 12, I went to CMT and I was like, hey, you know, I'd like to write a book teaching young kids to sew because kids aren't sewing. And they were like, well, show us what you can make. So I showed them tote bags and PJs and pillows and backpacks and folders. And they were like, wow, okay. So I wrote a book with CMT. Then we did a DVD for kids who don't want to read and they just want to play, pause, play, pause. And then Simplicity came through and I went to New York and I was able to draft patterns for Simplicity and make a Simplicity pattern collection. And soon after that, I was offered the opportunity to design a fabric line. So I have two fabric collections as well, all before the age of 15. That's pretty amazing. But you then pivoted. Tell me about that. So it was 2012, like my senior year of high school, about to be freshman year of college in February. Trayvon got murdered and I was in a sewing class that weekend. I remember her hearing the news and although it was like in Florida and obviously I'm in California and there's no personal connection, his birthday, he was literally like 14 days older than me. So we were both born in February, both born in 95. While I was like a grade or two ahead of him because I skipped, it resonated. I mean, not that it could have been me because I don't necessarily feel obviously the same fear that black men in America feel on a daily basis, but in the sense of he was in a semi-nice community, it just really hit home. And so I think when I went to the sewing class and I was like, okay, guys, we're getting ready to learn whatever new technique we're about to learn. But did you hear what happened to Trayvon? What are we going to do? Like, I'm just kind of like, what's our collective plan? And not even like, are we going to be protesting? Are we going to be calling people? Are we going to be demanding DA? Just what are we going to be doing on behalf of Trayvon being murdered in Florida? And I remember just the classes collective inaction. And it was the lack of like, it's not our problem. I mean, it wasn't their lack of empathy. They're all, oh, that sucks. But it didn't suck enough for them to be motivated to do anything. And I think that was the big difference. Not that they're an overgeneralization of the entire sewing world, but for that to be the space where I spent my time, this is my group, this is my little sewing squad that I've carved out. I know there's like a few decades of age between us, but at the end of the day, I kind of thought we were all wanting to not only learn, so, but like, I just think maybe perhaps in my mind being an active social citizen. So I think knowing that the group that I spend all my weekends with learning to be better, my teachers, my mentors, my sewing squad, it just, it really hit home. We are not the same. I knew that before. Obviously, I'm Black. Obviously, I'm 16. But it was bigger than that. It was, we're really, really not the same. And so I think at that moment, I was like, I need to really make a choice on where my priorities are, because that's where my time is going to go. So it was just a moment of like, okay, the sewing world isn't necessarily accepting all aspects of me. They like me when I'm silent and I sew. But if I have anything that matters, it's not necessarily the space where they want to hear it. And so there's a quote by Roddy Roy that says, there's no such thing as a silent, only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And so I think in that moment, I was feeling preferably unheard prior to my, you know, my, with parents that listened to me and talked to me in school, I was like, all student body president. I've never been deliberately silenced because I can always say something because I'm in spaces where at least people listen. I think in sewing, it wasn't that I couldn't speak. I just didn't care. Okay. She's talking, but we don't want to hear that. So I think that moment was okay, we have different, our common core values are are not aligned. So I was like, okay, I need to make more, I need to be more intentional with where I spend my time. So after that class, I went home and I was like, mom, and she was just like, Sarah, not everyone cares about Trayvon. We're a black family in America. They're class like Lafayette. Like Sarah, they're upper middle class and why why would they need to care? And I'm like, mom, because he was murdered. She was like, Sarah, that's not just because we care. Does not mean that we're reflective of everyone? So I think after that, I made a quilt about Trayvon Martin 
And it was just a big quilt and it just had his face and a hoodie in it. And then I think what killed me after that is all the places that I wanted to show the quilt, everyone said no. Like Barnes and Noble said no. Every place that I was speaking, I was giving a lecture. They were like, if it's not in your book, and I'd be like, no, it's an extra quote that I just made. Let us see a photo. Oh, it's a photo trip. No, it's Joanne's. No. Everyone just said no. And it's like, I'm already going to your space. I'm already coming to do something for you. Why can't I bring this extra quilt I've made? And basically it was, they want things that I make without a message. So that was a moment where I'm like, dang, now I'm feeling deliberately silenced by an industry that I really thought I belonged in. And I thought they wanted all aspects of me, my youth and my blackness, not just one before the other. Right. So how did it feel to make something, to quilt with a purpose versus more commercial? I mean, how did that feel to you when you did do that first quilt? It was a more empowering experience than like I think ever. The sense of it's like I wasn't making it to make a pattern. I was making it to express something. And then I think another cool thing is prior to making Trayvon, I was a quarter inch perfectionist. I don't make things that my points aren't matching. I'm very much meticulous because obviously that's how I was taught to sew. If your points don't match, pick it out. Steamworker is my best friend, et cetera, et cetera. Perfection was not the goal. It was the expectation. So I think with Trayvon, there was no rules. I was doing an art quilt. I'm now a SACWA board member, which stands for Studio Art Quilt Association. But SACWA art quilters, they make very free form, no rules. They're not making art for the purpose of selling patterns. I mean, some of them may be, but I'm saying like SACWA art is very like, there's no rules, no limits, no boundaries. And I think making Trayvon was a very freeing expression where I was using sewing and like fiber art as like the vehicle instead of the technique. I wasn't sewing, making someone else's pattern or making something with the intent to make it a pattern myself. So you made that quilt. And then when did you officially start as JSA? My senior year at Berkeley. Wow. Again, after I made Trayvon and after like, you know, my contracts were up, I kind of removed myself from the song world because I was a freshman at UC Berkeley and classes were, I was engaged in college life. But I think my educational experiences at Berkeley, taking classes with critical race frameworks and structures on systemic and highlighting everything from white privilege to, to white fragility, the ethnic studies classes, the sociology classes, learning about white flight and like move to the suburbs, learning about how underfunded public schools are. I've been to private school since kindergarten. So learning about educational inequity through this critical public school lens was extremely eye-opening. I'm a large believer in public school. So when I was at Cal, I minored in education, which allowed me to do a lot of field hours in local public high schools. And I realized I think a common theme throughout all the relationships that I made with young people is they felt like their voices weren't heard. They weren't heard at home. They weren't heard in the school system. Everyone was talking, but no one was listening. And so I went with a medium that I was comfortable with. I was like, well, what if you guys made art about what you cared about? And again, I think a common misconception is like, oh, you know, kids of color don't want to sew. Kids of color can't afford sewing. It's an extremely expensive the starter pack from rotary cutter to a mat to a sewing machine. I mean, that's a few hundred dollars initial investment. Oftentimes someone will say embroidery is the gateway drug to sewing because embroidery is a low cost, low risk starting point. You can buy a hoop, you can buy some fabric and thread and needle and you can get started. But sewing, you know, obviously quilting, particularly if you need a sewing machine, like that hurdle alone will cut off so many people from even being able to try it. And obviously in California, there's no more home ec. That title has stripped away home ec. So kids not only don't have access to sewing, the kids who make, there's not access in school. A lot of kids can't afford it. A lot of parents aren't doing it anymore. I know my grandma sewed a lot, but my parents don't. And culturally, sewing has been so intrinsic to the Black community. I was just like, it's a traditional textile. Let's bring it back. It's just so cool. And especially that you started this at such a young age. 
tell me about how Social Justice Sewing Academy works. You have, I know you do workshops. Let's hear about how they work, where you do them, who your students are. Yes, we do workshops. They're usually, I'd say, three to four hours each. And the first hour, hour and a half is built on a critical social justice discussion. That's very Montessori, RJ Circle formative. Like we have talking pieces. We sit down, we talk about what things matter to you. We have social change strategies where it's like, what's the power of storytelling? How are you telling your story? Is this means the most effective? Who's being left out? What are your biases? We just talk and we just discuss. There's a lot of prepackaged curriculum, but oftentimes it's changing depending on the needs of where the conversation goes. So it's definitely an educational component that kind of gives an, a broad overview. And then we break down to lived experiences on what matters most to you. If you could change anything in the world right now, what would it be on a systems level or on an individual level or on a school? And so I think in conversations, it comes up from anything from like saving the whales to not putting plastic in the ocean to defunding billionaires wealth inequality to something as personal as the school dress code over sexualizes and oppresses girls. I want to change our school dress code. There's just a range in what kids care about. So then after we discuss that, we let everyone make art about it. And again, in a very no rules, no limits, very liberating form of making art because there's no structure of this is how you do it. There's no color theory wheel we go through before to talk about contrasting, highlighting color, which is all what I've learned. Like, and I can pay respect to of learning it, and then I can pay respect to being able to leave it and unlearn a lot of what I had to learn in terms of the, the sewing is for perfection. Don't make stuff without point. Like it's really just it's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of the like the formal way I was taught. So I lead with this liberatory style of teaching, and then kids get more engaged. If you want to learn sewing the traditional way, I'd welcome to support you in that way too. So we have workshops where kids make blocks. We then take the blocks and we mail them to an amazing community of SGSA volunteers that are absolutely spectacular. And they get the blocks and they hand embroider all the kids' art. For people like me who are not that conversant in all these terms, a block is, is that a quilt square design? It's a 15 inch 15 by 15 inch square fabric with kids' images cut and glued on it. I send the cut and glued fabric piece to someone who's going to hand sew around every edge of every piece. And they do this one to secure it permanently. So when we move it around and get it shown, none of the pieces will fall off because they are just initially glued. But I think more importantly, and secondly, it's like they do it to enhance it. So kids will say, can you add words? Can you add hair? Can you add an outfit? Can you add flames? Can you add water droplets? And so I think with thread, they're able to add these minute details that enhance and amplify the youth's message tenfold. I took a look at your website and there's some really incredible pieces there. And it's the fact that they're created by kids who don't have a lot of background in this craft. That's the part that gets me the most excited because some kids make art and I'm just like, I don't know if you're familiar with Bisa Butler, but Bisa Butler to me is like the Beyonce of sewing in terms of art quilting. She's an amazing just textile with masters in fine art. She's just amazing, but she makes pieces and I see some kids and I'm just like, if you had parents like how I have parents, you'd be the next Bisa Butler because my parents would be just tooling you up with unlimited resources and tools and access and fabric and space and tools and scissors. And the participants are generally what age? Say 13 to high school. So I'd say middle school, high school. school. But I'd say we do high schools. We do juvenile halls. We do undergrad college classes. We do adult jails. We've done prisons. We've done homeless shelters. We've done LGBT youth centers. There's really no set. I mean, I'd say for the most part, high school, because that's obviously where we get the most requests. But it's definitely where any marginalized young people are. We will go. And because we don't have like a physical home base, we've done workshops in everywhere from Boston, Florida, Georgia, Texas, Chicago. 
What effect do you hope that this process of researching and then crafting have on your students? I would say it's kind of like different than a typical art class. It's like engaged learning and engaged scholarship in the sense of they're not just doing it to just be saying, oh, I've done this, I'm done. But they're really doing it with the purpose of it living outside of the school's walls. And I think it's very different. Even in college, I'd be writing something for me. And then some of my more engaging professors, hey, you're writing this paper, but it's going to be an article on Medium. So make what you're getting ready to write be palatable. It's different. I've made Wikipedia page. UC Berkeley taught me about engaged scholarship in the way of I need to make things that are for the community, not making things for my professor to read and then it be gone. So I think when I explain why we're doing this, it's an opportunity for you to have your voice heard. It's an opportunity for people to see it in museums. At this point, we've been in the National Quote Museum. We've hung in Harvard's gallery. We've been in San Jose Quote Museum. We've been in the Jewish Community Center in San Francisco. We've been in spaces that traditionally won't even ever have a show of minor made art. Because really, if you think about museums and quilt shows, whose art is worthy. And kids' first-time art is never typically brought in to such prestigious places. Yeah. And what kind of feedback do you get from the kids when they're done with the workshop? I'd say they're like, oh, when are we going to have an exhibit? When is it going to be done? I think that they really look forward to the collaborative model that they know is next with the embroidery volunteer. They've made the block, but they know that it's going to an adult. And I think the fact that when I explain what embroidery is, when I explain comments and feedback, it's usually like 10 to 15 hours. The fact that I'm making something that an adult, particularly a middle-class white woman, is about to spend 10 to 15 hours on, and I get to write instructions from their mindset, that's really shifting the tables on who gives directions to who. And not that it's you know a bossy thing, but like for a kid to be telling an adult, can you add this? Can you add flames? And for an adult to just get the kids work who they don't even know. I mean, it's a huge selfless act on our community of volunteers. Everyone knows like you can embroider a hoop, put it on Etsy. That's $85. Embroidery itself is a paid for art form. So the fact that we have embroidery volunteers embroidering their it's not their grandkids' art, and it's going to a, a cause bigger than the embroidery volunteer. And more importantly, the embroidery volunteers don't even get associated with the quilt. Only the 20 kids who make the blocks do. Although 20 adults embroider the 20 kids' work. They're anonymous. They're anonymous. That's the best part. And it's like for them to selflessly be giving their time, their fabric, their resources, their skill, and they're paying shipping. So that's an extra few dollars. For them to be able to send them back, that's just a sell. And especially in the craft world, which very much I did, I did. It's all about me. And it's all about credit, which I respect. But we really only highlight youth makers because it's their voice. It's their art. It's their artist statement. But we obviously acknowledge done in collaboration with adult SGSA and boarded volunteers. But really for it to be focused on the youth without diluting the message by putting all 40 names. But it's not even 40 names. It's more like 50 names. 20 kids make blocks. 20 adults board the blocks. Then a quilt group. We'll sew the whole quilt together. Then Nancy, our long arm, Nancy gets credit because obviously she long arms everything. But really, our long arm, it's just a team of committed adults that are really behind supporting youth voice through art. And I think that's the most powerful intrinsic collaboration. And I think more importantly, seeing people, for example, I remember a block, it was in a New York workshop, and a kid made a block about Khalif Browder, who's in Rikers, and he killed himself after being in solitary confinement like eight years. But the worst part is he was in solitary confinement in one of the worst prisons in America. He got out and mental illness is what killed him. That block went to be embroidered in like Oklahoma, some random Midwest flyover state. No, no offense. And the woman who got it didn't know who he was. But before she started embroidering it, she watched the entire Netflix documentary series on him. And so I think the learning that happens from the embroidery volunteers, because for the most part, we're doing these in very 
under-resourced, historically underserved communities. And they're being embroidered in like million dollar homes. I'm saying we have volunteers in Palo Alto, in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco. It's just an amazing group. And more importantly, our Midwest group. It's really cool to have the learning happens on both ends. The kids get a framework, the kids get to express themselves, but also the abortive volunteers, they get an artist statement on something that might not be even in proximity to them just due to their physical geographical location. If you live in a homogeneously white affluent suburb, you're not seeing gentrification. The kids in Oakland are going through it firsthand. You might not know the eviction process, but a kid sending you a block on their eviction story, like, wow, I've never done this. But I mean, it's a therapeutic, I guess, form for the kids to do. But I think it's also really reflective on the abortion volunteers part as well. So I think it's that dichotomy of learning that both ends. And then the viewers get to see it when they see a quilt and they see all this kid art. It's really just like youth voice beyond learning. It's really just listen to the voice of someone that might not be in your immediate friend group. Yeah. I mean, you just hit so many points that are so powerful. There are so many elements of what you're doing that bring a sort of therapeutic benefit to the makers at both the kids level who are grappling with their feelings about these really difficult and complex issues that are affecting them directly, then bringing in the volunteers who have to then grapple with those as well. I mean, I actually have that question here and thank you for answering it already, but just about the fact that quilting is an inherently slow process and that these volunteers in very, I love it, this person in Oklahoma who had to sit there and really learn about this person who suffered and died because of their treatment at Rikers. That's a lot. I mean, that brings a lot to a lot of different people. It's very multifaceted what you're doing. It lets anyone engage from any part. Yeah. So it's like if a kid has no art problem. Plus the viewer, like you said. Right. Plus the exhibits, because the exhibits are extremely powerful. Not just exhibits, but people who look at your stuff on social media. Anyone can go on Instagram, and I know you post a lot of stuff there. Anyone can go on your website. I've seen stuff there. I know there was one piece that I looked at as I was going through your website that just took my breath away, which was this American flag where in the white stripes, there were basically images of looked like people who had been lynched. The fact that, first of all, that's created by a young person is so, so powerful. And the way it had been distilled down to these really fundamental images and then thinking about the process for the person who created it. So anyhow, that was one that really, really resonated for me. Do you have any personal I'm not going to say favorites at all, but are there any that you want to talk about? Yeah, there's one called Reparations. It's not even on the website yet, but it's made by a group of kids in Utah. They're predominantly kids of color. And instead of doing just an overview on social justice, the kids committed to coming for a few week session. I think it was like four or five weeks. We had a facilitator named Stephanie who did day one workshops where they unlearned, well, not unlearned, I'd say they relearned American history from the perspective of a black community. So it's like Howard deserve white lies our teacher told me. They just read this critical framework of just from everything from like what happened in Africa before slavery. It wasn't starting from the oppressive starting point of like, okay, slavery, then civil rights, now all things are good. It's like they learned about the Tulsa, Oklahoma race massacre. Forget race riots. It was a massacre. I mean, it was just really giving rhetoric and giving power to the lived experiences of communities that have been 
I mean, oppressed, marginalized, murdered, rape, just ran through. And I think after the kids had so much learning, they're like, okay, now you guys can make a block on what you guys care about. And again, it was open. They can do whatever they want, but because they were all so inspired by what they had just learned. And more importantly, I think, I think that workshop really highlighted their disappointment in their school system for how they were taught. But I think this one particular workshop, these kids made these blocks. And I kid you not, the blocks starting in slavery to the transatlantic slave trade, to picking cotton, to penal farms, to the new Jim Crow, to just, I mean, the way, and the cool thing is the kids each picked a subject that they liked the most. And then they together came up with the timeline on how the blocks are supposed to go in order. And it ends with protests. BLM. And I think it was made over a year ago and it got it embroidered and it's now being long armed. The fact that it goes from the second to last block is like a memorial of a bunch of people who've been killed from Tamir to Trayvon to Ahmad to George, like just lists of names. And obviously Ahmad and George are on it. Those are new, but it's just, and then it ends in like a protest. And obviously it's interesting how things are still almost the same. This quote, reparations, the way that these kids have, have written these youth artist statements, it's the most phenomenal snapshot of history told through the eyes of black teenagers. Well, I can't wait to see that. I hope you put it up somewhere where we can all see that. So just for a moment, I just want to talk a little bit about quilting because I know it has such a really interesting history. I think a lot of people associate it with little old ladies and rocking chairs, but it's much, much more than that. So I just wanted to know if you want to say anything about what exactly about the medium of quilting lends itself to telling stories of social justice in its history. Yeah. So my great, great grandmother was an Ethiopian slave who was bought by a Confederate soldier, 33, and she was 12 and she had four kids from my great, great grandfather, I guess was like not only a pedophile, but a straight rapist. But I think through that, she was a really big quilter and a quilt got passed down. And when I was like four starting to sew, my grandma gave it to me. You still have that quilt? Yes. And it's like early 18, like it's the oldest quilt with lumps of cotton in it, with still burrs in it, with hand twisted thread. It looks like a used bin quilt. The front of a dress is in it. It's not squared up. And I'm like, mom, she didn't even bind the quilt right. And I think hearing, and obviously seeing my grandpa, and even I have a great grandma that I remember being young, she would hand quilt white women's quilts for like $25 in Union Springs, Alabama. More importantly, I think sewing, particularly in the black community, has been told to tell stories. It's been, I mean, from putting clothes in it to really just just using it as a means of just expressing yourselves. And I think for slavery, they made quilts because they needed to, to stay warm. If you didn't have a quilt, your kid might die. I think that that wasn't coming as like, we're doing this because we want to. For at least black culture, it was like, we're doing this because we have no blankets. We're doing this out of scraps. We're doing this with what we can. But even like, if you go and you the National Quilt Museum, they have quilts, obviously, from the early 1900s. I'm saying the most applique, beautiful quilts. But then if you look at Black history, Black quilts, it's like Yee's Bin. They're all warped and cattywampus. And it's like you can just see the difference in, I guess, people's access while they sewed. So I know you have other initiatives going on at SJSA. I know you have a Facebook group that I joined that has teachings and discussions around social justice. And then I also noticed on your website, you've got a new business incubator and something called Quilts for Remembrance. Do you want to talk about those? Yes. So Facebook group is called the SGSA Learning Community. And we post every Sunday a unit of resources, meaning PDFs, articles, news links, videos, everything from race, politics, and sewing that can really give you a detailed history in that to like, what is white privilege? What is white fragility? What does gentrification look like? What does defunding the police really mean? And it's really more so 
highlighting authors of color, where if you're not sure where to find that and you're not necessarily willing to invest the money into buying the books to learn, here's a free resources that we've curated for you to do your own learning or oftentimes unlearning. So the Facebook you know, learning community is amazing and a really brave space that you can share stuff, but you can also be challenged, but challenged and prodded with love and oftentimes given the space to do a U-turn if you might have some thinking that might need to change. So the Facebook learning community is amazing. We also have a Facebook page where we post blocks that get embroidered. Then we have the Quilts of Remembrance Project. So the Quilts of Remembrance Project is us making quilts for families of loved ones who've been murdered by systemic problems. So we're making quilts right now for Stephen Taylor, who's murdered by San Leandro police. Matthew, who's killed by just violent crime in Vallejo. Like we just make quilts for people, whether it's killed by police, whether it's killed by the community, whether it's killed by a neighbor because they're jogging in your neighborhood and they're scared. We just make quilts for the families. I think oftentimes everyone knows getting a quilt is comforting. The quilting community shows up for Hurricane Katrina with quilts, with Houston floods for quilts, with the Pulse Massacre for quilts. What about the community that's been killed by systemic stuff? There's not really an organized institution making quilts for these one-off murders, which are literally happening daily. So after talking to kids and they're like, well, who's going to make a quote for Breonna Taylor's family and, and George Floyd? I'm like, you know what? I haven't seen anyone doing it. So let's step up again, relying on our SJSA family community and they're stepping up and the quotes that are being made are beautiful. So if any family knows someone or you personally have lost someone, you can give us the name. You can send us clothes. So they send us clothes from the person who's been murdered and we give it to the volunteer who pieces it into a top. And then with our SSA network, we coordinate a long armor, someone to bind it, and then we get it back to the family completely free of charge. So that's our Quotes of Remembrance project. Then we have what's called the SSA Remembrance Project. The Remembrance Project is very similar to the AIDS quilt and that we're making panels of people from not just this year, but I'm talking about like decades who've just been killed unfairly. And oftentimes not just the most important or viral or trending names. I think that's really key. Some of the names, we have an Instagram called so and the number four justice underscore SJSA. Deborah Danner was an older woman who was killed during a mental episode. Monica Diamond, a transgender person. Charles Parker, Gerald Johnson, Desiree Garza, Shelly Freight, like there's so many names that don't get the viral sensation of George and Trayvon. And, and oftentimes, even as a critique to the movement, it's focused on cisgendered men. What about the women? What about, Brown still doesn't have justice. It's been over a hundred days. Why haven't those cops been arrested? It's like, I think oftentimes women are still, even in movements that are centering black issues, women are still chopped off on the ends. As Malcolm X said, black women are the most disrespected group in America. I think oftentimes their voice isn't brought to the forefront. So it's really just, it's an entire community quote. People are making panels and then we're sewing the panels into long strips. And then different from our SJSA quilts, these panels are going to be used at community protests and events. So we make SJSA quilts with the intent of exhibitions, museums, et cetera. We're making these panels with the intent of this is formed by the community. So we're going to do just days of public art installations. We'll just be in an Oakland park. We'll be at the San Francisco Capitol. We'll just put up stands and just do a pop-up quilt show. So as you see these hundreds of names, don't forget, there's still an issue. Even if it's not trending anymore, let's not let the fire die. So that's the Remembrance Project, and people can sign up for either. You can sign up to make an entire quilt. You can sign up to make a panel. And then we have the SJSA Business Incubator, which is for youth that was really developed in response to COVID. Our summer programming got canceled. Obviously, workshops aren't necessarily productive on virtual platform. First off, how are they going to get the fabric? Second off, the kids in there, and sometimes the fabric can inspire them. It's hard to do a workshop before you can see and touch the fabric. It's not all about the art. It's about the conversation. It's about empowering youth. So I figured, I've been talking to a bunch of kids. There's a lot of things that kids want to do. And guess what they don't have? 
people like my parents supporting, mentoring, giving them resources, tools, and guidance. So after talking with some amazing sponsors, we've got Janome, we've got Moda, we've got people who are sponsored, we've got Bolt in Portland, we've got Tigercraft, we've got some CIA, we have some industry leaders who are giving us money to give every kid a $1,000 seed grant. Now this program is going to run, it's a six-month virtual program, so kids all across the U.S. can do it. There's going to be like lectures each month, and then there's going to be one-on-one mentorship. So it's like the lecture might be, this is how you design a website, this is how you get started, this is how you write a mission statement, this is what prototyping looks like. And then the mentor calls, they get assigned one mentor, and that mentor calls and builds you know, a relationship that I hope will extend past the six-month commitment. But really, do you need help? Do you have any language you want me to check over? And so for let's just say we just make sure that they're doing the homework and then we give 250 after the first two months and then we get receipts to make sure that they've used it well. Then we give them the next 250, then we get receipts, then we give them the next 500 and then we get receipts. But within six months, we expect kids to make Instagram pages, Facebook pages, make products. We have some kids that want to do screen printing. We have some kids that want to do candle making, soap making. Kids just have ideas. Some are just very social justice based. Some of them have ideas of what they want to fix, but they don't know how to do it. So really it's like whether it's an idea or whether it's something you've already tried, we're just supporting kids with resources, tools, and more importantly, mentorship. Because oftentimes kids have ideas, but without good resource, without an idea thought partner, their ideas just stay in their head. So it's really to help them turn that idea into a tangible, let's do it. Yeah. That's amazing. So you're now moving completely beyond quilting. And I mean, this is just really community support and using obviously your knowledge. You're an entrepreneur to help other people. Who do you get for the mentors? We have a sign up sheet. So if there's anyone who's listening who'd like that, that is so cool. Hint, Nancy. (laughs) Feel free to, you know, drop a line. It's a six month commitment, it's a few hours a month, but it's really just calling the kid, texting the kid, FaceTime. Okay. Well, you are giving a lot to a lot of people in a lot of different ways at SJSA. I'm wondering what it has brought to you. I mean, how has this journey been? What do you find fulfilling or inspiring? I would say really the relationships I make with young people. I think millennials, I mean, not to brag, but I think we're one of the best generations that have come out of America. I mean, I really think that We're going to be the catalyst of a movement that's going to really change and shift the fabric of American society. And we love America so much, we expect, and we're going to hold her to a higher standard to do better. There's a good quote that's like, the nationalist loves America no matter what, and the patriot loves America for what she does. We want America to do the right thing, and we're not just going to love her blindly. You love America for what she can be. So if people want to help, if they want to donate, if they want to be a mentor, or volunteer if they're experts that were, what should they do? Go to the website. Okay. Become involved in border block. Our blocks, obviously we're not doing workshops, we're making blocks. So we can get on the list. And But when we do make blocks, for example, they come in a hundred at a time. So everyone's always welcome. A workshop will be 30 kids back to back to back to back. So it's like, we definitely always need block and bordery volunteers. Right now, if you want to help something fresh, just say, make a panel for the Remembrance Project. We have thousands of names of people who need to be honored and hundreds of volunteers have signed up. The list will always outweigh volunteers because people are being murdered daily. And the website is? www.sjsaacademy.com. <laughs> well, Sarah Trail, this has been really, really an honor for me to talk to you. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. It's so important and it's just been great chatting with you. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. I look forward to it. And hopefully we'll see you as a mentor. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you for listening. 
New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.